If you have your Bibles or devices, if you'll turn with me to the book of Ezra and uh, the eighth chapter, and in a few moments we would get to verse uh, 21. Last week we looked, I, uh, if you're new to us, we are in the middle of 21 days of prayer and fasting as a church family. It's a very significant time, something we do every January, and um, God always uses it to speak to us, to uh, to call us towards repentance, uh, towards seeking his face more fully, and he's always so faithful in these times. And so as Wade said, our Wednesday night prayer time is a really important part, seven to eight on Wednesdays. If you'd like to come Sunday mornings, we pray for in here from 9.15 to 9.45, so you're welcome to come there. But last week we looked at Zechariah's prophetic challenge to, to the men of Bethel as they came to him And they asked, should they continue fasting as they had done for 70 years? Uh, They were fasting primarily lamenting over the destruction of the temple. Uh, And so now in Zechariah's day, as the temple is beginning to be rebuilt, they're wondering, should we keep on fasting? (laughs) And, And so Zechariah, the Lord through Zechariah, really calls them out. He, he speaks questions to their question. And he says, was it for me that you were really fasting? Or I should say, was it really for me that you were fasting? And when you were feasting, when you were eating and drinking, weren't you just doing that for yourself? Uh, and I, those words have continued to resonate in my spirit, <laughs> ring in my head in the midst of this fasting time. Why do I do what I do? What is the motivation behind my, even my devotion to him? Why do we do what we do as a church family? Is it for him or is it for ourselves? Well, some 60 years after Zechariah's challenge to these men of Bethel, we read another time when God's people, Israel, is is fasting again is being called to fast, and with really good reason. Under the leadership of Ezra, God chose him, Ezra, as as his designated servant for a particular time, something God really likes to do. Um, And Ezra is a scribe who is skilled in the law of Moses, and he is going to be leading by God's design, a third wave of Jewish exiles from Babylon back into Jerusalem, which by no means is an easy journey. It's very challenging to make that journey. It's some 900 miles. It took four months for them to travel this distance. They didn't have a Tesla or a Buick. Do we even have Buicks anymore? (laughs) They didn't have, you know, mass transit. They didn't have airplanes they walked. And so for four months, they would be walking through dangerous territory. And that territory was littered with bandits and robbers and and enemies of Israel. Not only did they travel with their women and children and elderly, but they were also traveling with offerings that had been given for the temple and those in Jerusalem by those who remained in Babylon. And so they have treasure with them. Oh, and they've also been given very precious items for the temple, things that had been stolen or taken by Nebuchadnezzar some 130 years before uh, when 
he had sacked the temple in Jerusalem and taken these precious items uh, off with him. And so the new, or the king of Persia uh, in this day, Artaxerxes, has given these treasures back to Ezra, and they have this great offering, this treasure that's been given to them, and they have all these wonderful people, and they are going back to Jerusalem. And so the challenge for them was how do we safely make this trip? How do we make this 900-mile, four-month journey without losing our lives or our treasure or both? The simple answer is they sought the Lord. That's the simple answer, but you know I've got to speak more than just that. They sought the Lord for safe journey, and let's just look at how it transpired. Ezra 8, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that they might humble themselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us, against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. I guess he painted himself a bit into a corner. And so verse 23 says, and so we fasted and implored our God for this. And he listened to our entreaty. Ezra is a significant leader in the history of Israel. In fact, some call him the second Moses. He was a descendant of Aaron, the high priest and brother of Moses. He was a scribe of the law. He knew the customs. He knew the word, the Torah. He knew the Psalms because they would have been many of them received by that time. He was a student, but he was in exile. And God chose him to lead another contingency of Jewish exiles out of Babylon and into Jerusalem. He also had privileged access to the king of Persia, which is intriguing to me. He he had direct access because he's speaking to him. We just read about it. But apart from all of that, there are two things about Ezra that really stand out to me. Two things I want to share with us today. First, he lived fully devoted to the Lord with complete conviction that God would make a way and protect them along the way. His devotion to the Lord was more than just quiet symbolism or ritual practice. It required of him a tenacity to trust that God would not only make a way, he would protect them along the way. Ezra, as we would put it in our vernacular, put his money where his mouth was. He had confidently told a king something he had to live by. He said to this king, Artaxerxes, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Now, that's pretty bold stuff for a Jewish scribe to say to a Persian king. I mean, I'd like to be in on that conversation. Just how this transpired is, 
Artaxerxes, is he sympathetic to Ezra? Is he a new convert? Is he someone coming to faith? He's allowed to belong as he comes to belief? I don't know what's exactly happening here, but I know that this is a very interesting interaction because Ezra not only told Artaxerxes what God would do for those who seek him, he also told him what God would do for those who don't. That's a bit of a line in the sand. That's a bit of a, and for you, O king of Persia, if you choose to forsake him, then you will suffer the wrath of God. But it gets even more interesting as Ezra is now tapped to lead this group of exiles back home through this dangerous territory. And in that moment, he doesn't shrink back from his earlier claims or go back to the king and ask for what he had boldly declared that God would take care of in the first place. He stuck to his guns. It would be shameful, he said. I would be ashamed to have to go back to the king and ask him for protection because I made it perfectly clear that we sought God and he would take care of us. I'm sure as he was saying this, he's reminded of the psalm that David wrote when David said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Ezra had testified to God's power to protect him. Now he would confidently walk out that testimony. You know, as followers of Jesus, we're given the same opportunity to put our money where our mouth is. We are given opportunity to live out what we say we believe. We can be pretty bold and we should be when testifying of God's faithfulness and his forgiveness and his provision and his healing, but the proof of our testimony is in our living it out. My granny said, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Well, the proof of your testimony is in whether you live it out or not. Is there something backing up some authenticity what you're saying? And sometimes our actions, to be honest, just don't line up with our words. Like, when people say, well, God is my provider, but then act like it's left up to them. We read the word and we say, my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. But somehow we skip the parts where he says, give him your tithe and surrender him your whole life and be a cheerful giver. God's my provider. We know that God is very clear. He loves a cheerful giver. And God, surely you know that I would like to give. Surely you know that I kind of believe you could do more with 90% of what I have that you gave me than I could do with 100% of it. But, you know, I want to buy that whatever it is. I want to buy that new car, that new phone, those new clothes, that new house, whatever. Whatever. And those credit card interest rates, well, you know how hard they are. 
We don't want to let those payments slip. And I'm kind of low in cash this month, Lord. Oh, and last month, Lord. And oh, last month. And then a month before. But you know I want to give. You're my provider, right? It doesn't matter, does it? Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Or we testify to God's forgiveness. This is one that I, I think some of us can fall prey to. We, we know that God has forgiven us, but we have difficulty forgiving others. Our testimony doesn't line quite up with the way we're living out. I should say it the other way around. What we're doing doesn't line up with what we said. We quote scriptures and tell other people how God will forgive their sin, but that offense we're hanging on to, that thing that was done to us, um, was said about us, well, that's different. Oh, I forgot. I, I mean, I forgave. I just didn't forget. Does God do that to us? How we hang on to things while our testimony has been that we are forgiven, do we live like it? Because to live like it means we would forgive others. Or what about when we say God is our healer? That's our testimony. God heals. He is our healer. But then we look to so many other things for healing. In this day of medical advancements, We've got every imaginable thing to run to, including supplements and essential oils. Did I touch on anybody's toes? Did I step on anybody's toes? Actually, I, I use essential oils on my feet, believe it or not. I smell, my feet smell very, very fragrant. <laughs> Sometimes we don't even remember to pray about it. We just go toward the remedy. We just go to the doctor. We just go to the medicine cabinet. We just reach for the supplements. We don't even think to pray. Is God our healer? Or is our healing kind of up to us? Please don't misunderstand. I'm not against doctors or supplements or essential oils. I just wonder if the way we are living testifies more to our personal healthcare strategies than it does to the fact that Jesus said that he is our healer. And that we should bring everything to him. And that by his stripes, we are healed. Are we people of integrity where what we say adds up in what we do? Do we testify that he is our provider, he is our strength, he is our source, he is our healer, but live as if it's all up to us? That I got to do this. Do we say we trust in the Lord, but our anxious lives tell another story? Hmm. Ezra not only testified to God's power, he counted on it above all else. He lived a life of integrity and he sought protection, but he didn't go back to the king asking for horsemen and soldiers. No, he sought protection from the Lord, his God. He made it abundantly clear to that king and to the people, it'd be a shame to have to go back and ask because I believe, I know God will do it for us. He called God's people to do the same. He said, let's fast. Let's pray and fast. Let's seek the Lord. Let's humble ourselves and seek protection from God. That's the first thing that really stands out to me about Ezra is that he was a man of integrity and that his testifying was not 
they weren't just words. His life backed it up. The second thing that really stands out to me about Ezra is how he fully recognized that every success in his life was for one fact and one fact only, that the hand of his God was upon him, that the hand of the Lord his God was on him. He said it many times. In fact, there are six different times in Ezra 7 and 8 where it says something very common, very, I mean, very similar. The hand of God was upon him or the hand of God was upon them. He believed it. He understood that that's what made the difference. Back in Ezra 7 verse 27, it says this. Blessed be the God, excuse me, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love. That's Hesed right there. He extended, God did, the steadfast Hesed love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, and here it is, for the hand of the Lord of my God was on me. I took courage because God's hand was upon me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. The hand of the Lord is on me. It's the difference maker. It's the game changer. It is the thing that we all should be desirous of. That God's hand would rest upon us. The hand of the Lord is on me. You know, it's such a very interesting personal and vivid imagery here. Especially when we remember that Jesus told us in John 4 that God is spirit. But still, God allows us, even encourages us to see him as having human features. Human parts, hands, and arms, and ears, and a face. Using such language is called anthropomorphism. It's where God is described as having human features. Jesus said, God is spirit. And yet, God allows for us to see him in ways that we can understand. Of course, the ultimate is that Jesus put on flesh and blood and dwelt among us because a full understanding of who God was was impossible for us to have. We needed him to stand with flesh and blood so that we could see God. Such descriptions of God, however, are throughout all of scripture. You see it in so many different places, these anthropomorphic descriptions of who God is and what he does towards us. David, said, incline your ear towards me, O God. And then he said of God in Psalms 89, you have a mighty arm, strong is your hand. The prophet Isaiah also used anthropomorphic language. He said in, in Isaiah 59, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. Why, even God himself used anthropomorphic language. 
when he was describing himself as having an outstretched arm, he said this to Moses in Exodus. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of justice. Ezra tapped into this. He understood and recognized that the hand of the Lord was on him and that because the hand of the Lord was on him, he could tap into the promises of God and all that God would do for him. The hand of the Lord was on him. Oh, and the hand of the Lord was upon those that Ezra led out of Babylon and into Jerusalem. He fully attributed all of his success to God's hand upon him. Ezra 8, 31 says, then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And there it is again. The hand of our God was on us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. The hand of our God is upon us. Is there anything more life-altering, more encouraging, more powerful, more reassuring than knowing that God's hand is upon us? When I was five years old, my parents uh, had my baby brother. He's five years younger than me. I always wanted to be a big brother. And so I was pretty delighted, though my world was pretty shaken. Just another little person in the home. But I was delighted. Some of you know my brother. His name is Chad. He is a chiropractor, which is interesting because we both lay hands on people, but for different reasons. <laughs> but if I have to say so myself, I was a really good big brother. <laughs> and apparently I did have to say so myself. He never did. Uh, but I was a good big brother, I think. And I was always protecting and directing and honestly trying to control him. Uh, I was also oftentimes trying to shield him from harm or injury from friends or neighborhood kids or whatever, uh, even my parents. Uh, I remember when I was about eight, I had just accepted the Lord and I was really decided in my faith. And my brother, he was have been three or four. He was playing with a ball in the house, which was something we were supposed to do. And my mom had these two ceramic quail uh, birds, uh, quail, but I called them porcelain pigeons. <laughs> I don't know where I got that, but that's, they were, she bought them at one of those interior decorating, you know, home uh, parties used to have. All the older women will know what I'm talking about. Uh, and so that ball bounced right up on that table and broke one of those ceramic quail. And my brother looked at me terrified because he knew he's in trouble and he knew the spanking was coming. And uh, yes, my parents spanked us and, uh, and you probably should too, your kids. So, but that's, that's another side. Uh, and he was like, and then in him comes my mom. And I, I looked at him. I had just been really challenged and growing in my faith. And I was learning, even as an eight-year-old, what substitutionary atonement meant. 
all right, I didn't use those words, but I was understanding that Jesus had taken my place. He had taken my punishment. And so I looked at Chad being very magnanimous and (laughs) Christ-like. That's where you should have laughed, right there. (laughs) And I said, Chad, don't worry. Um, Jesus took my punishment and I'm going to take yours. And so as my mom walked in the room hearing the, the crash and she walks in and I just take my brother by the, with my hand and I just move him back to behind me. And he's standing back there, you know, like what is gonna happen here? He's three years old. I don't think he really gets it. And, uh, and I said, mom, so proud of myself. Mom, Chad broke one of your porcelain pigeons. <laughs> but, uh, and I know you're going to be mad, but I know that Jesus took my punishment. So I'm going to take Chad's punishment for him breaking your pigeon. And she just broke into laughter. Uh, we still had that porcelain pigeon uh, when I got married because I had to tell Donna that story and die laughing telling it. But honestly, I wanted to be a big brother that shielded my brother. And in my own little proud way as an eight-year-old, I wanted big brotherliness to make a difference for him. And virtually every photograph that you see of us growing up with me and my brother in it, I've got my hand on him in some way. Uh, It's on his shoulder. It's around his shoulder. I'm kind of shielding him. I'm bringing him up. I'm guiding him and steering him. (laughs) He probably didn't think he needed it. I felt like he did. (laughs) And I wanted to protect him. And I wanted to make sure that he would be seen in the picture and that he could see. God's hand on us is so much better than my hand on my brother. And yet there's something about that that you understand. I remember Brother Charles laying his hands on me and Donna when we got married in 1986. And as he put his hands on our foreheads, I lost it. I was a blubbering, uh, snotty mess. I told Donna, let's not cry during our wedding. And she didn't. (laughs) But I did. And she had brought a hanky just in case. And so she just handed it over to me. (laughs) It was ugly cry too. It was, and he put his hands on us. And I can feel the electricity even to this day when I think about it. Because it felt like God's hand was resting on our heads. And he prophesied and shared things and prayed over us. And that means the world to me. That God's hand would touch us like that. I think about my grandfather's hand being so strong and so powerful. I would look at his hands. His hands were so much bigger than mine. My dad and I got skinny arms and small hands. He got He had big arms and big hands. He could do so much with those hands. 
And now my hands look more and more like his, the age spots and the wrinkles and uh, all that stuff. But I kind of like it because it reminds me of his hand, which reminds me of his hand. And I want his hand to rest on me. God's hand points to all the ways he's working in my life. That God's hand would be upon me means that he is there to deliver me and to save me and to shield me and protect me and to correct me and to guide me and to comfort and challenge me, to stretch and heal me, to provide for me. And because his good hand is upon me and upon you in such a personal, familial way, then we get to experience in our lives the blessings that build us up and the interventions that grow us up. So when you have favor at work, that's God's hand. It's his hand that made it happen. And when you grow deeper in your understanding of him, that's God's hand that made it happen. And when you have breakthrough with your kids or a better relationship and communication with your spouse, that's God's hand that made that happen. And when you feel rescued from a bad situation that you couldn't get yourself out of, that's God's hand that made it happen. Whenever I experience clarity, protection, healing, encouragement, it's all because God's hand is upon me. Any success I have is because his hand rests upon me. And out of his love for me, God makes it happen. And all of it brings deeper meaning when we sing that hymn, Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Ezra demonstrated for us two very important things. First, we should have integrity in our devotion to him. That what we testify to, we actually live out. That we don't say one thing and practice another. And secondly, our success in any and all areas of life are not because we're smart, but because he is. Not because we're capable, but because he is. Not because our hands can do it, but because his hand made it happen. May we as his people have those two things said of us. May our children rise up one day and say, these things were true about my parents. May our young people in this church say, those things were true of that community I grew up in. May your husband or your wife say those things about you. May it be said of us, we are people of integrity who not only testify, but do it. And people have full assurance that God's hand is upon us. Amen. My wife is going to come and share um, 
what God has put on her heart. And I say this a lot. And uh, when she's fasting, she's even more charged with the Holy Spirit. And so it's like, this is probably putting pressure on you, isn't it? Yeah. But she has great revelation. So no pressure, but yeah. Share what's on your heart and we'll pray for the people. Through this time of fasting, we've heard several words repeatedly. One is humility and the other is integrity. And they go together. Um, One of the things that I felt God saying during worship this morning was a phrase in one of the songs about our innocence being restored. And I thought, okay, he's, he's been talking to me about several things and that was sort of like a piece that shifted the way the picture looked. So I'm gonna make this brief. God has promised to give us a whole heart. And our heart gets fractured by just living in the world. But the scripture says that we are to come to God in the fear of the Lord with faithfulness and an undivided heart, a whole heart. He says in Mark again, love the Lord your God with your whole heart. That's the integrity piece the humility piece, the wholeness. Because we get fractured when we start thinking we can do it. We get fractured when we get offended because other people aren't doing it. We get fractured sometimes by just hard, painful things in life that are not necessarily anyone's fault or choices, but that we live in the world that doesn't know him. And God came to make all of those things whole. So when I pray for us today, if you're fractured because of your own response to God, sin, clinging to things like Grace's prophetic word that he's asking you to lay down, he's come to bind that up and present your heart whole before him. And if your heart is broken through sadness, through pain, through loss, he's come to bind that up and make that whole. That's right. So that we can love him with a whole heart. And when we ask him for forgiveness, which is how I'm going to pray for us this morning, he restores our innocence by making our heart whole. That's good. Would you pray? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for doing what it takes to not only make our hearts whole, but keeping them whole. Thank you that you heal broken hearts regardless of the cause and that when we come to you, laying down all that we bring so that we can receive all that you are offering. It is a restoration of innocence. It's a whole heart that you produce again and again. We do want it to be said of us, Lord, that your hand is on us and that we're living lives of integrity 
And the only way that happens is if we bring you our fractured hearts every day and ask you to do the miracle again of giving us a whole heart so we can love you with a whole heart. We can serve you with a whole heart. And we can spread the good news of the gospel that we know a God who can make you whole. Yes. Lord, we thank you that your word has come to not just bring conviction, but to bring restoration. And so when we feel convicted, may we quickly turn. May we see you in our posture of repentance, not to simply feel sorry for where we are or what we've done, but where we can receive from you what you've done so that we can be in a better place, the place you've made for us. Lord, I pray that you would make us as a church community, as, as singles, as married couples, as families, as men and women, as young people, Make us people of integrity, Lord. Yes, God. Let the plumb line come down into our hearts and help us see where we've been speaking a lot of words, but our lives haven't lived up to them. Help us, Lord, to see it the way you see it and then surrender to you and see how you can work in us a greater degree of obedience of integrity, of walking out what you've called us into. And Lord, all of these things are only possible because your hand rests upon us. Yes. There is no other way. We wanna be people of your presence. We wanna be people of your spirit, but we recognize it's the proximity that you have towards us and to us that makes all that possible. Your hand rests on us. May it be so. May our children see it. May this community see it. May those closest and far from us see it. They're different. God seems to have his hand upon them and it seems to make a difference for them. And Lord, I pray for anyone today that is struggling with these areas that your Holy Spirit is bringing light, putting light upon, shining light upon. Lord, may they respond to you. And may God do a new work in their life. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand together.